This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Today on Two Guys in a River, we're going to do some myth busting. That's myth, M-Y-T-H, myth busting. The myths that we're going to bust are about safe wading. There are always a few wrong ideas floating around out there, and if we don't bust them, well, to put it bluntly, you might drown, and we don't want that to happen. Right, Dave? Absolutely. Not on our watch. And here to help us today is our friend Dave Cumling. He lives in Bozeman, Montana, and he's been on our podcast before. He has over 40 years of fly fishing experience as a licensed outfitter. He's been a fly shop owner, and he is also an employee of Trout Unlimited. Dave has seen it all. So, Dave, we are so glad to have you back on our podcast. So, welcome to Two Guys in a River. It's really good to have you back on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I really have been looking forward to this. This is the next best thing to fishing together, but uh, maybe we'll get to do that in the near future. So, what are some of the f- myths that fly fishers believe about safe wading? Uh, we know that you've guided a lot of fly fishers. You talk with a lot of them. Uh, what are some of the wrong ideas that we might have in the fly fishing community about safe wading? Some of those myths that we need to bust. Well, I think that's a good question, and there are a few. Um, one of the things in general is I think a lot of anglers spend time when they're strategizing about going fishing, about what fly am I going to use, you know, what tippet size, where the fish are. But there's very little thought given, given to a strategy to wade safely, to fish the particular piece of water. And that very rarely is given any thought, and and that lack of planning sometimes can lead you into trouble. One of the other myths and um, is that a lot of anglers don't use wading staffs. They don't think they need them. Um, They find them bothersome. They get in the way. But I'm convinced that's one of the keys to safe wading is to know how to use a wading staff properly. And effectively, it'll not only keep you upright, but actually lead you to play to be able to fish better, to fish more water safely. Uh, with the other sort of myth is about water and waders pulling you down. If you fall into the water and your waders fill, that does not pull you down to the water. That does not pull you down to the bottom of the river. That's a physics problem. I wasn't a physicist, but I remember taking a a wading safety, uh, water safety class. And so if you're in the water and your waders are full of water, that's displaced. It only starts to weigh something when you stand up. And so at a pint to a pound, if you've got, what, 20 gallons of water in your waders, and there's, what, eight pints? Is there eight pints to a gallon? Right, two pints to a quart. So there's eight pints. That's eight pounds. That's 160, 70 pounds on your shoulders when you start standing up. So you have to remember that if you do get in trouble, water won't pull you, the, the full waders won't pull you to the bottom. And this was shown to me. We swam in this one class in our waders, and it really wasn't that hard to do. Swam with and without wading belts. Um, so that's one of the myths that you have to understand, and that helps you if you do get into trouble. So those are 
three of them kind of that I can think of. And I know that uh, I started using waiting staff after watching you uh, doing that. I was kind of uh, considering it, but then I, I saw you doing it even on a even on a smaller stream. It, it just made a lot of sense, and so uh, yeah, that's that's really helpful. So I started using one a lot a long time ago. I turned seventy in January. And I think I started using waiting staff when I was 26, and it was the result of me fishing with a client on the Gallatin River, who at that time was probably three times my age. And in the course of trying to follow this gentleman around for the day, and he was a strong waiter for his age, a Dean River steelhead fisherman. If you know anything about the Dean, that's an extremely difficult river to wade. And in the course of trying to follow him around for the day, I fell several times. And at the end of the day, he came up to me and thanked me for the fishing, gave me a cash tip, and gave me his waiting staff and said, son, I think you need one of these. And so I've been using one ever since. My son, Chris, sort of thinks it's a capitulation to infirmity somehow. But I told him, I said, look, I started using one of these when you were still a baby. So it's I've been doing it for a long time. And I just would not fish without one if I'm waiting 44 years of waiting with waiting staff. Well, I, I actually just started one, uh, using one probably two years ago after I saw Steve, uh, after I saw Steve use it. And I have to tell you, it was, there's a little bit of pride there. You think, eh, this is a concession to age. And that's just so wrong. And it just, it's, it's this, it's part of that first half of life that men have often, which is I'm not, you know, I'm never going to die. Using a waiting staff just in the last couple of years has become really important to me. So I'm so glad that uh, that you said that. So you were 26. So 26 to 70. That's just a. That's uh, you're also here to tell us these stories. So that means it must have worked. A capitulation to age or infirmity. I was just like that when that guy gave me the staff. I was 26 years old, a young, relatively inexperienced guy. I thought I knew everything. Could wait anywhere. I'm a pretty good athlete. Was always comfortable waiting with our staff. But once I started using one, not only did it keep me upright and keep me from those near falls and stumbles that you encounter no matter what, um, it does help you on your fishing because one of the things I know I can do with a wading strategy planning is that I can fish water that most anglers will pass on because they can't comfortably get in position and get back out to fish those spots. Like... Use the water up around the slide-in, um, Reynolds Pass Bridge, where you have a lot of those big pockets that are sometimes hard to reach from the bank. Quite a few of those, if I can see a strategy that will get me in and out without a lot of trouble, I'll go wade to those using the staff and um, wade there comfortably and safely, fish places where a lot of people aren't going to reach, and then exit without taking my life in my hands. So my position is, not only is it a safety issue, it'll help your, your fishing productivity because you will get yourself into the proper position to, to fish without risking your life. Do you have any stories, like that, even with a waiting staff, that you go, okay, I, that was a bad spot that I was in, and I'm glad I'm here today. Yeah, I have one that I'm lucky I got out of. So I walked up into the bear trap on the Madison, well up. So I was in some of the, fishing some of that fast, heavy water. And um, I got to a place where there was a rock, a large rock jutting out into the river, and the current around the rock was pretty fast. It should have been where I quit and went back upstream, but I thought, well, I can sidle around the end of that lock, 
rock and so I gave it a try and I really couldn't and I got washed off my feet and uh, washed into some fairly heavy water and um, one of the things I did to my credit I immediately realized that I was in some serious trouble and headed for more so I pitched my fly rod I just looked towards the bank the shallowest slowest water I could see and threw it as hard as I could as I was going down so I got rid of my fly rod that's the last thing you want to try and protect if you're in that kind of trouble. And then this is before I'd really thought it out. There were a lot of rocks in there, and I was going to swim. And then I thought, I don't really want to swim head down river in this. If I swim into one of those rocks, can't stop myself, hit my head, then I'm a goner. So I just flipped over on my back and got my feet in front of me and sort of did bumper cars for 40, 50 yards, bouncing off rocks till I finally got washed into a place where the water was relatively shallow. This was another teaching moment. This was a big teaching experience. So then I tried to stand up, and I wasn't wearing a belt. So I had a lot of water in my waders. And as soon as I tried to stand up, I was still in some current. Then all that water weighed some, right? And I was tired. I was in shock. So it knocked me off my feet again. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to stand up, so what I might as well crawl out. So I literally just crawled to the bank and got to where I was in real shallow water and then could stand up and drain my weight or some. So that bear trap experience, it could have taken my life, literally. It taught me a lot of lessons, and I've since sort of talked to others, and, and through my own experience, I learned a bunch of stuff on that, in that near miss. While we're thinking about equipment, we've talked about wading staffs. What else do you? What about what about footwear? And that's that's a challenge these days because you know felt works so great, but uh, trying to get away from uh, felt for uh, yeah just conservation reasons. What what do you recommend? So you guys know I work for Trout Limited, and I worked on aquatic invasive species for TU for five six years. And one of the big issues I worked on that was in the era the advent of all the felt sole bands. And so I did a fair amount of research. I talked to the manufacturers. At the time, I tried almost every waiting sole that was available to see what worked. The L.L. Bean thing, I think they called Aqua Stealth, if you remember that. Some, some felt soles, some of the early carbide stud things. And so I did a lot of experimenting with the various boots. And... Uh, I've gotten to the point where, for, for aquatic invasive species reasons and grip, I use the rubber sole boots with the bar stock, with the big aluminum bars on them. I'm not a huge fan of carbide. It's too hard. It, 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 nylon is soft, so it smears and you can get a grip. Carbide, you tend to slip in. It'll chew into stuff, but it's such a hard material that I've quit using those. Um, I've got a pair of boots that has aluminum screw-in studs on them, but I'm not going to brand promote here, but I, I have a pair of boots that have aluminum bar stock on the bottom. Do you guys remember the old Dan Bailey stream cleat? The thing that, that was a irrigation rubber that went on over your boots had big bars on the bottom that Dan Bailey made? Yeah, in fact, I yeah. worked in Paradise Valley one summer for a ditch rider, and uh, I think he had a pair of those. Those were the one of the best things in the world for staying upright. They were uncomfortable, really hard to put on because you had to stretch this big irrigation rubber over a boot foot wader at the time. That's what we all used, and that was 
hard, but that's essentially where this bar stock thing. So for most all situations out here in our freestones, that's what I wear. Um, rubber, this, the thing about felt is felt works really good, but if you fish like this time of the year out here, felt can be dangerous because you, I'm sure, have done this. When your boots clump up with snow on the bottom, that's really it's hard to walk just to keep your balance, but if you step in the water and you've got a bunch of snow packed on there, you're immediately going to slip. So I just don't wear felts anymore when it snows, and I've gotten to the point now I just go to those rubber aluminum bar stock ones. It's an easy boot to clean. There's, it's You can clean that boot out. It tends to dry out a little faster. If you're worried about aquatic invasives, the best thing you can do is get your stuff dry. They don't like to be dried out, so that boot dries pretty fast. Um, so anyway, that's where I am. I've gotten to, to on footwear, uh, and that seems to work pretty well. The bar stock stuff without question. And I've used a lot of different ones. Gives you the best grip on that stuff like Willow Creek, upper Madison. Willow Creek is a hard stream to wade, as you guys know, and I never have any problem there at all with the wading staff and those cleats. So why don't you start going down your list? You you had a you gave us a bunch of points uh, in prep for this. And one of the things you talked about earlier was this idea of, uh, and you didn't really dip into it yet, but this idea of a safe wading strategy. So I'll have to ask you, I, was, I didn't prepare well, you guys. I, I don't have my list. So you lead me through what I said. Absolutely. But that strategy stuff is is very important. There's a story with this too, and I can't remember his name now, but he was a well-known uh, fly fishing author who drowned on the bighorn in sight of his friends who were along the bank, and he waded out into one of those bighorn midstream gravel bars that drops off at the end. You know how those are? They just peter off into nothing, and there's a big hole below them, and the tail ends of those are always soft, sloughing sand and gravel, so he's wading down fishing a run he got to the end and he started slipping down that slope and he couldn't get back up and he struggled and struggled and struggled and spent a lot of time trying to just walk back up the eight or ten feet to where he could get to shallow water and he couldn't do it and he got washed off his feet and he drowned he drowned in front of his friends and nobody could do anything about it they thought he was going to manage it and get back up but he did not and, and so so your strategy you have to start with an entry point so you go back all the way up. You look at the water you want to fish. You want to fish this nice run against that far bank. And you've got to plan a strategy to get to where you can fish that effectively. But then look at how you're going to get back out. And why do I say that? Because if your strategy for exit is going back up river, as you guys well know, good luck. If you've got 25 yards to go and you're waist deep, it, you'll be lucky to do that. I mean, that's that'll entirely out to the point. If you really don't have any exit that's safe, then you shouldn't be trying to go to that place. And you don't want to make your exit. I always tell people, if you've got an entry and exit strategy, you need to see the bottom of the river, both for your entry, your fishing, and your exit. If you get a place where you can't see it, if it's just dark water and you don't really know how deep it is, you've got no business including that in your strategy. So entries and exits the other thing, it's an adage in life, you don't spit into the wind or do something else into the wind, right? You don't do it. So you don't want to have to, to wade into the current going upstream to get yourself into your fishing position or out of your fishing position. So I always use the, 
the river as my ally. And rarely do I turn my back to the current, so my big fat butt is catching the whole thing. I stand sideways. And so it's a it's a slimmer profile for most of us standing sideways and then turning, you know, across the current. So this is the other thing about waiting staffs. I tell people never take a step where you don't where you don't have your staff planted. In other words, don't get into a situation where you might stagger. So I if I'm in a situation where I'm where it's a not precarious but it's a little more challenging, then I will take one step plant my staff, bring my other foot up, reach the staff out for a short step, plant my staff, take another step, and then another step, and then replant my staff. I'm very deliberate if it's somewhere that I think is going to be a little challenging. But by being that deliberate and having a good strategy, there might be a bunch of guys that look at that run on the far side of the stream through that water and say, oh, I can't fish that. Well, yeah, I can't get to that. I can't wade to that to fish. And that's probably true if you're just on two feet. But with a third point of contact, you can get yourself to a lot of places. So strategy is entry and exit that's safe where you can see the bottom. Use your staff. Do not take steps with your boots, with your feet, when your staff is in the air. Because if you lose your balance, and I've done this, ignored my own rule, you lose your balance and you take your staff, and try to jam it in, and it deflects off the rock and goes out to the side, now you're going to do a face plant, right, because you've lost all contact. So I, a lot of people use staffs, and then you'll watch them, and they use the staffs, and then they'll take two, three steps and get into a stagger, and then they got to wildly try to plant their staff again. Then the final part of that strategy is use your staff and, and points of contact to get yourself literally almost all the way out of the water again. Don't quit when you're five feet from the bank and you think everything is okay. Just use it all the way to dry ground. It's just a good habit to get into. And doing that, it's been a while. I cannot remember the last time I, I really lost my balance and went down. I guess I did once this winter, but it was because I stepped in a snowdrift on the upper Madison and the thing, I went down into it about four feet. But other than that, just waiting in the river. It's been a long time since I've fallen, so I know this works. You've talked about studded, or the, the boots with the bars, wading belt, obviously. You've talked about a wading staff. You also mentioned a swift water rescue knife. Good. That's a great one. So we have um, requirements as an outfitter when you're in a drip boat, what you have to carry. So you have to have one cushion for every adult uh Children under 12, 12 and under, I think, have to be wearing a jacket. You have to have a throw bag, the rope throw bag in your boat. And it's not a requirement, but there have been some drownings. I don't know if you guys remember this one. There have been some drownings. There was one on the Gallatin where a guy got caught in a, in a raft rope. He fell out of a raft. It wasn't even a fishing trip. And he, it was there on House Rock. And so he fell out, and he got caught in the rope. And he couldn't, it couldn't get him out because it was in fast water. So he's hanging there in the sight of everybody, but he's submerged. And so he drowns right there. So the swift water rescue knives, I've got one. It's in a sheath. But it's a pretty good-sized knife. It's not as big as, like, a big hunting knife. But sharp on both sides, sharp as the Dickens. And I've got it right next to me in the boat, and I carry it with me when I wait. So if I fall, 
and I get stuck in something, if it's rope-wise or something, I might be able to cut myself out of. That's the reason I have that. I, I probably told you guys the story. I hung an anchor once on the upper Yellowstone up around Corwin. I dropped the anchor in a place I never should have dropped it. I knew it when I dropped it. This is not a good place, but I wanted to tie a new salmon fly on for this guy because we were coming to a really good bank there by, by uh, Mulhern Creek, by Church Universal. So I dropped the anchor up above that, and the thing hung up. And I got a knot in my anchor rope. That's another stupid thing to do. So I flipped the rope out, and the rope ran through the pulleys, and the knot got stuck. So as soon as it did, it pulled the back of my boat up uh, underwater, and my boat started filling up with water, like instantly. And I had the, the rescue knife, and I cut it. And so the rope came free, and the boat came free with about, you know, my old drift boat, about two and a half, three feet of water in my drift boat, trying to row that thing. So I've used that rescue knife a couple times for those kinds of, it's mostly been cutting ropes. I, I, that's the kind of thing that I use it for. Um, and that throw bag thing, if you're in a boat, we didn't have that as a required piece of equipment. I don't think this is the first year. I've used that two times that I know saved people's lives. My son Chris and a good friend of mine pulled some people out of the Yellowstone Mother's Day Caddis time in early May who had dumped a canoe and had, who had been in the water a while. It was below Mill Creek Bridge. And we they were going down holding on to their canoe and, and their stuff was all scattered around. So we rode over to them and they were in shock already because that water's really cold then and couldn't respond. So I took my throw bag and threw it right at the chest of the guy. I got right next to him and he just grabbed on. So we dragged him out, got him to the bank, went right back, got his wife, and got her to let go and grab the bag, and got him over to the bank. And then they proceeded to be, they were very grateful, of course, and said, well, we're just going to get our stuff and row down to the car. And I said, no, you're not. I said, you're soaking wet. It's getting cold. I said, by the time you guys row down to your car, wherever they were going, I said, you're going to be hypothermic. So what you need to do is leave your stuff right here and walk up, back up to the Mill Creek Bridge and knock on that rancher's door and tell them you need a ride and i said we're not gonna go anywhere until you do so they did got their ride and i think eventually got their stuff and then i pulled somebody off a rock up there by the further upstream on the yellowstone who'd wrapped a john boat around rock and couldn't get off and so we threw him the rope and swung him over to the bank so i've actually used that thing i know those people in the canoe would have were in serious trouble the guy on the rock it was a nicer day, just high water on the Yellowstone in early July. He probably could have survived that for a while. But uh, those two people in the canoe were in serious trouble without us rescuing. And there's no way we could have gotten without the throw bag. I could, for example, I don't know if it would hold me, but if, let's just say I fell in the gallop and, and my waiting staff got hung up. And I was being washed downstream. If my waiting staff was hung up, I can't pull myself to free it then I'm just going to cut everything. I would just get that knife. That knife is a place I can get to pretty easily. Then I just cut whatever it is, my, my day bag, my weighing belt, whatever that staff is hung up on, I cut it loose. You see these guys that do a lot of whitewater stuff, the, the kayakers and the heavy-duty rafters, almost virtually all those guys use one. And you don't see it as much among, amongst fishing guys, but you might have one and maybe never use it. But if you needed it, 
that's what those are built for. So you can you cut your way out of stuff in a hurry. I think I'm going to add that to my uh, to my waving staff on my belt, my bear spray on my belt. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it sounds like a it sounds like a good addition. So, Dave, another thing I know when I've waited before, I, I learned. I think I learned early on to take short steps. Um, you know, even to yeah, you, you get your feet too far apart, and it seems like then you've got two legs that uh, you know are. You talk about physics. Now you've got you know pressure on two different places, and so if you keep those together, you're going to be better off. But yeah, even in terms of hurrying, I think you you talked about that too. What, what do you recommend as far as uh, uh, you know speed of waiting? I, I think we get into these situations and we're all trying to hurry because right. we we might panic. But better to slow down, right? Well, absolutely. That that goes back to what I, in a strategy just, and I didn't mention that. But taking steps without a staff planted, and describing the steps as as you just did. They've got to be short ones. And I always tell people when I'm crossing, I mean, I've crossed these rivers thousands of times and, and, or crossed cross into waiting. So I'm more comfortable. But you can't make someone, if you're fishing with somebody else, per- proceed any faster than they're comfortable with. If, they, if you do, you're doing them a disservice because they, they undoubtedly will get into trouble doing that when they're not as comfortable. I know what it feels like when I put my foot down in a decent looking place and it slides a little bit, I know that it's gonna seat if you would or grab. I'm confident that I just have to let my foot settle in. Some people aren't when they feel that slipping feeling or right away pick it up and take a bigger step and try and find a new platform, right? So you always wanna be walking from, waiting from a solid platform, really short steps and always be able to see the bottom. And if you're, if you're waiting and you get at all uncomfortable, then you got to turn around and use your exit strategy to get out. Don't try to walk your way through it. If it's only three or four more steps, right, and it looks like I can get, if you've gotten to the point where you're really uncomfortable, then you got to stop. So then you got to carefully turn your yourself, you know, around, basically, and switch your, that's another thing, switch your staff so that your staff's always in your downstream hand. Always use your staff downstream. Because you got your staff in your upstream hand and you lean on it, then you've just unweighted your feet. So your feet are going to come out easier. So if your staff's down, the river's going to push you and and push you into your staff, which is a stable platform. So if you have turnaround, then you're going to rotate your bell around. If you're fishing river left, you're going to go back to the other bank. So you've got to turn, put the staff in your left hand so it's the downstream hand, and then work your way to the bank. I've seen people use staffs and they, they plant them upstream and then they push hard on them and then they take a step and then they start slipping because that's just the physics of the whole thing. It'll it'll unweight your, uh, your platform and you start sliding. So that's a good thing, Steve, is to not take big steps. Always step from a stable platform. And there are some places that I can think of. There's one place that I know I can cross on Upper Slough Creek but they're going to be four or five steps where I'm going to have to take really short steps and get a stable platform and not take any steps that are even remotely close to not having a staff planted. And it's going to be three or four steps, and then I immediately get back into very shallow water. And I've done it enough to know that I can. 
But if I just went in there and started taking bigger steps and didn't have a stable platform, it's a spot I know I'd slip in. So, you know, you'll gain some experience with knowing the water that you fish a lot. But uh, like I said, going all the way back to what I said before, I know this helps me catch more fish just because I don't reach places where I'm foolhardy, but I know, I know I reach places where I can safely wade that the anglers on two feet won't touch. And uh, you guys know if you find rusted water like that anywhere, even in the middle of a heavily fished area, you're going to have some fish there that haven't been bugged, right? You know where Mad- the Madison flows into Hebgen Lake. So Steve and I were right there recently, eh, a couple years ago, and there was a bank, and I was in really soft, sandy, uh, sandy, a, a, you know, a sandy. The bottom was very sandy, and and it started to fall off, and it went in. I mean, it went into nothing. It was a black hole. I could I couldn't see the bottom, yeah. and I tried to back up. So when you've got the river flowing, let's say from left to right, but I'm facing perpendicular, and I'm trying to. How do I back out of that when you're when you're starting to feel like you're stuck in sand and you're starting to sink you know that's a good question i don't know that i have a an answer from experience but from what you described so your chest is towards the bank or your yes is your back towards the bank no the chest is towards the bank the river is flowing from left to right left to right and And you're you're slipping down here so you're slipping yeah you're starting to sink and you're like you're kind of sinking forward almost so I, I think I had, I know I had a staff, and I got out of it, but I thought later, you know, that was a really, really bad spot. So one of your suggestions is to make sure the staff is in the downstream side so that you're not... That's a spot I probably would never go again, <laughs> yeah, just because that's the same kind of thing that ate the guy in the bighorn. That's exactly what happened to him. He tried to back out of that. And there was no footing for it. Every time he took a step, it gave way. It, you know, and so those those situations. And I was in one just on Thompson Spring Creek. You guys know where that is out north of Belgrade. That's a that's a thing you could spit across, right? And I got into a yeah. hole that was silted in, and there was nothing going to happen to me that other than I was going to be stuck there for a long time. I could not get out. The more I struggled the worse it got. And it was literally quicksand-like stuff. And so I had to take, I took off all the clothes I could take off and threw them all up in the bank. I was close enough to do that. And I had to lay back and kick my way out of the waders and get up on the bank and grab those waders. And it took all my strength to pull those things loose. And by then, of course, I'm a muddy mess. I'm soaking wet and I'm covered with mud. But I could not get out of there. So, you know, I don't know, uh, Dave. That one's pretty tough. I think the thing, if you're really in trouble and you're not going to get out, is uh, I'd probably probably toss my rod towards the bank and see if I couldn't get on my back or my butt and swim out of that thing. I mean, if you're really stuck and you can't get out, if you're really stuck and you can't get out, that's... The struggle of sitting there and fighting against that, if you get too tired, that's dangerous too. You don't have the strength to manage anything. So, But that's a really tough one. And I, when I get into those kinds of bottom configurations for that water, or that's just quicksand-like, I just don't go into them anymore. After that Thompson thing, just don't. 
You know, I've I've learned the same thing. Having fished the East Gallatin when I lived there, I, I think that was the first time I really noticed, hey, there's some places here where there's just mud and I could sink in. And I, and I started using my wading staff. To, if, if something looks suspicious, test and there's it. another good use of your wading staff, yeah, test it and see. Boy, if you can uh, push your wading staff down into it, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to avoid that. Oh, I'm sure you and I have walked along some of the very same water and river bank on that river up north of Belgrade. And there's a bunch of that stuff, you know, with all the, all the silt that gets into that system, there are some, there are some silt holes in that thing that it'll, you can't get out of. And so I've gotten into a couple of those and those anymore, I just figure out a way to totally avoid them. And uh, rather than try to walk through them or, do something but yeah i think that's the way to do it if you have the the wherewithal just test it if that waiting staff goes all the way in if you got five feet of waiting staff and some relatively soft mud you don't want to step in that uh okay. dave, yes dave Conley. anything else final thoughts nope i just tell people to make sure in the, in the when they're starting their fishing outing that they've got safe waiting strategy Included in all the different choices about fly, fly rod, waiter, tippet, and that whole part, because it'll make it, you'll make it a more productive fishing experience and definitely one that's much safer. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, take care, and we hope to join you on the river again one of these days. Yeah, for sure. We missed last year, but I, I look forward to that. I enjoy fishing with you guys, and thanks for doing this. I think this is a real service to your listeners. All right, it's time for great stuff from our listeners. Here's a comment from a longtime listener named David. It's on our recent podcast titled, The Hope of Fly Fishing in the Waiting. And here's an excerpt of what David wrote. Thank you for a wonderful podcast. During these crazy times, it's good to hear from you both. You ask if fly fishing has gotten us through a difficult time in our lives. Yes, most definitely. When my dad was ill in the hospital and later passed away, I grabbed my fly rod and headed to the stream. I have to admit, several rises were blurred by the tears in my eyes. I did a lot of soul-searching that day on the stream, a little conversation with our Lord. As the day went on, I felt a comfort, confident that my dad was with the Lord. I landed a few fish and sat on the bank, taking it all in. You also asked if there was a time when you just didn't feel like fly fishing. Yes, that happened to me when I lost my yellow lab sage. I took her everywhere, even fly fishing. But the day came when I had to have her euthanized. I held her until she took her last breath. Later that day, I took my fly rod and headed to the hills. When I got to the stream, I parked my truck and grabbed the beef jerky and sodas I bought at a store on the way. The beef jerky was Sage's favorite. When I opened the tailgate, I was reminded my friend Sage wasn't with me. I broke down in tears, got back into my truck, and drove home. There was no fishing in my heart that day. God bless you both. Prayers that you and your families will be safe. Tight lines. It's hard to say anything after that, uh, after that post. Dave's comment is a great example of how sometimes fly fishing can be what you need at the moment. But, uh, yeah, there are also some days where, uh, yeah, you, you just have to say, uh, yeah, not today. And then, then another day, it'll be that it'll be that medicine for the soul, won't it? Yeah, I just saw a great quote uh, that would book in that uh, that uh, that comment by David. 
It's also relevant to the situation that we're in now. It's by Corey Ten Boom. Remember her? She was the yes, uh, yeah. That, wasn't she a, like uh, captured by the Nazis? What's her story? Yeah, I remember she she and her family hid, uh, you know, hid a uh, number of Jewish people during World War Two, and uh, she and her sister eventually got sent to a concentration camp. I think her sister was was uh, put to death or died in the camp. Uh, Corey survived. Yeah, that's right. This is her quote, which makes it so relevant given where we're at. Where we're at. She says, Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. Wow. Man, that's right on target, isn't it? Is it not right on target? Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows, it empties today of its strength. Man, that's so good. Yeah, worrying doesn't uh, doesn't help. You got to do some planning, and uh, yeah, even as we talked today about uh, yeah about safe waiting, uh, you got to do some planning. But yeah, worry is a that's a whole different animal. So yeah, another good reason to go fly fishing. When I'm fly fishing, I yeah, hopefully I'm worried about the right things. I'm, I'm focused on safety, but, yeah, some of the other concerns uh, kind of get left behind. All right, that's all for today. Thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. <laughs>